Great. So uh, if you're new to us, as I said, we've been going through this series looking at how Jesus isn't just the focus of the New Testament. He is the focus. He is the central figure. He is the reason for the whole of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about him. As Jesus himself said in John 5, he said, these scriptures that you're reading, they testify about me, about me. And so far in this series, we've seen how Jesus is the true and better Adam, where Adam failed, where he fell in temptation and sinned. Jesus was tempted, yet was without sin. Adam was an antitype of Jesus, if you like. Where death came through one man, Adam, so life comes through one man, Jesus Christ. We also saw with the story of Abraham and Isaac how Jesus is God's provided sacrifice. He is the substitute lamb. And we'll be looking at that a little bit more this morning. And as Michaela preached last Sunday, Jesus is the great I am as he stood there on trial, he said, before Abraham was, I am, using God's very own name. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is and is to come. What an amazing God we serve. This morning, we're going to be looking at the Passover, the time when the people of Israel were finally released from captivity in Egypt. And it's a very apt focus on this Palm Sunday as we remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem along with hundreds and thousands of other Jews to celebrate the Passover. It's the start of what we now call Holy Week. And at the time, and it's still, you know, it's it's a huge festival, massive festival, The week-long festival of unleavened bread kicked off by the Passover meal. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem along with the thousands of others, the fields would have been filled with lambs ready for the feast, ready for the sacrifices. And yet just picture Jesus riding in. Luke says his face was set like flint. He knew where he was going amongst all the cheering and palm-waving, Hosanna in the highest, knowing that those same crowds in a few days' time will be shouting, crucify him. He knew he was riding into Jerusalem to be the true sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. It all started Back in Exodus 12. Let's turn there if you've got your Bibles. Exodus simply means departure, a way out. The word comes from the Greek translation of the Bible where we get Exodus from. And if you were with us last week, Michaela did a brilliant job of just preaching about Moses' call to lead this, this people, this nation of God's chosen people out of captivity, out of slavery. This this nation had only ever known for over 400 years forced labor. 
generation after generation, born a slave, dying a slave, under the hardest conditions, horrendous conditions. I mean, just think about that command to kill every single newborn Hebrew boy. I mean, it was a horrendous regime, but this was their life. This is all they knew for well over 400 years. Yet God heard their cry. And as Amy was saying just a few moments ago, he is the God who sees. He's the God who sees. And he doesn't just see, he acts. He acts. He hears their cry and calls Moses to lead the people from the, I was going to say the burning bush. It's not. It's the bush that was on fire but was not consumed. Thank you. Got that right? Because, of course, it wasn't being burned. That's the whole miraculous thing about it. But he called Moses, and they knew that the great I am would be with them. And I think it's important to note before we get into this that this rescue wasn't simply an act of mercy. But actually, it was a demonstration, a, a, a declaration of who our God is. He is the rescuer. That is who he is. We read in Exodus 7, God saying to Moses, when I raise my powerful hand and bring the Israelites out of Egypt, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. This was a declaration of who our God is. He is the Redeemer. He alone has the power to save. He alone has the power to set us free from bondage. He alone has the power to set us free from slavery. He is the Redeemer. And we read in the previous chapters, just to give a bit of context, that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Despite so far nine horrendous plagues being brought upon the the people of Egypt. You know, interestingly, each one of these plagues directly related to uh, an Egyptian deity. It was God saying, I am demonstrating my sovereignty over all the idolatry, over all the fake gods of Egypt. I am the great I am. Time and time again, he was demonstrating his sovereignty. And time and time again, Pharaoh's heart just became more and more stubborn until the final devastating 10th plague, the death of every firstborn male. Man and animal. And so God gives Moses some very explicit instructions to prepare the people. And it included preparing a meal before they went. So let's pick up the story. Uh, Verse 5 of chapter 12. I'm going to read a chunk of this. I'm going to miss out a few verses just uh, just for time. But hopefully we'll get a flow of the story. So reading from verse 5. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from sheep or goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Jumping to verse 11. This is how you to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. Eat it in haste. 
It is the Lord's Passover. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign to you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you're to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove all the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it, from the first day through to the seventh, must be cut off from Israel. Jumping to verse 28. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Israelites got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. It's incredibly sobering, isn't it? Devastating. A mighty, mighty move of God. And I just want to bring out three key points this morning from this that directly apply to us today. And the first point is this story, this Passover, is all about trusting in the blood. God gives them explicit instructions to sacrifice a lamb without blemish and brush the blood of the lamb with a hyssop branch across the top and the posts of their door frames so that when the angel of death passes over, their firstborn will be saved. That must have been one scary night. Picture yourself there. What are you thinking? I hope this does the trick. I hope the blood is enough. I hope what we've done is sufficient. We read in verse 13 that actually the blood was a sign for them, not for God, because God knows our hearts. God knows who's trusting in him and who isn't. But actually what God was doing through this was showing them that his salvation relies on two things. It relies on the death of a substitute. That their freedom costs. That something had to give their life to shed their blood for their freedom. But it also demonstrates the faith of those who put their trust in that blood. It's obedience and it's faith. Trust and obey. You know, it's interesting to note that actually sacrificing a lamb at that time in ancient Egypt was punishable by death because lambs were deified. So even doing that was a pretty bold move. It was basically saying, it was a a statement of faith. You had to be pretty sure that God would be true to his word because you were basically saying to the Egyptians, I am rubbing this in your face. It was a risky move, 
But those that demonstrated their trust and obedience were saved. God brought salvation through death. And although they wouldn't have known it at the time fully, one day God will bring salvation from death through the death of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 5 as our Passover lamb. Jesus is our Passover lamb. You know, as they splash that blood across the lintel and down the posts, you can just picture, you can see the symbolism, can't you? That one day there would be a wooden cross with the blood of Jesus splashed on it. The Lamb of God, our sacrificial lamb. Why blood? Well, blood signifies a life given. Leviticus 17 says that it's the lifeblood of the animal. The life of the very creature is in the blood. And Hebrews 9 says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Jesus was that once and for all sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He is the fulfillment of all of this. When he died on that cross, he said, it is finished, job done. Sin paid for, death dealt with. The grave couldn't hold him, we've just been singing. He was sinless perfection, and he rose again, conquering sin and death. It's dealt with for all who put their trust in his blood. It begs the question, doesn't it? What are you putting your trust in this morning? Where is your hope? Is it in doing the right things, saying the right things, not doing the wrong things? Is it what Alicia was saying, you know, just, just keeping rules? Or is it about trusting in his blood? Trusting that Jesus has done it all, that he has fulfilled the law. Where is your trust? This tenth plague finally broke Pharaoh and he gave the command get out, get out. And once they'd received that command, once they got the green light, they had to walk through that blood stained doorway. Yes, into freedom but also into a new community. They were called to be the people of God, called to step through that doorway into a new land, to reflect God's glory, to reflect his presence. Not just freedom from slavery, but now called to be the people of God. And we too can only experience true freedom by trusting in the blood of Jesus and we then step into freedom, step into the very presence of God, step into our new identity as children of God through the broken body of Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am the door. In John 10, anyone who enters by me, anyone who enters by me will be saved. It's, it can't be any clearer than that. And, and I just find it amazing, nearly 1,500 years later, as Jesus himself sits down with the disciples in that upper room to celebrate Passover, 
when he picked up that bread that they had been baking without yeast for generation after generation after generation. There he was picking up that very bread. And what does he say? Luke 22. This is my body. All that you have been doing from generation to generation to generation, this is my body given for you. In the same way, he takes the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Not any old lamb's blood. In my blood, which is poured out for you. At that moment, he stands up and gives the fulfilled purpose for this Passover meal. It's all about him. It's all about him. That must have been just a a watershed moment. For his disciples. It's all about me. So the Passover has real significance for us today, 21st century Christians. You know, our very communion, breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, is rooted in this meal. And, and where the traditional Passover celebrated God's rescue from slavery from Egypt, we now celebrate the greater exodus of God's rescue of us from slavery to sin and death. I love that. The Passover was a salvation event marked by blood, trusting in the blood, and that blood pointed to Jesus, our sacrificial lamb. But secondly, it was also a meal, very obviously. It was a meal to be shared together. It was a community event Families gathered together for generations. And still today, for modern Jews, they gather together. They eat the, the, the Seder. They eat the Passover meal together. Observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it, it's not just sharing their history. It's actually part of their identity. Who they are. Saved from slavery into a new community. This was a new thing that God was doing back in Exodus 12. It was such a significant moment. He even said, I'm going to reset your whole calendar. Your new year starts now. You celebrate the Passover on the 14th day. It's a new year. It's a new day. You're a new community in my blood. It was so significant But it was a community event, and that's why they celebrated in family units. That's why they came together as one people in Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem must have been rammed. And yet, as we read this through the lens of the New Testament, as we see so clearly the gospel foreshadowed through all of this, we see that when we come to faith in Jesus, when we put our trust in his blood, we too are saved into a new community into his church, his body. We're saved into community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We are his children. 1 Peter 2 tells us that in Christ, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession to proclaim the virtues of him who carried you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, 
Once we were not a people, we were slaves to sin. We had no identity. We had no freedom. But because of Jesus, we have been called out of that. And we are now the people of God. And I think this is something so important to to increasingly model. I think we do this well. I think we need to increasingly model this, this sense of community and family and unity particularly in our our socially disconnected and isolated culture. Loneliness is such an epidemic. You know, the gospel knows nothing of isolated believers. When you read through the pages of Scripture, you don't see that. You see community. You see unity. People from all different backgrounds, yet brought together together. One in Christ. And this Passover meal modeled this sense of community. Sharing a meal, sharing the common history from generation to generation, to parent, to child, to child, as the generation's going. Remembering the great exodus. Remembering the good things that God has done. It's good to remember. It's good to remember what God has done. You know, when you're, if you're going through a difficult time, Remember the faithfulness of God. Remember the good things that he has done for you. And it's much, much easier when you do it in community. We can encourage one another. Do you remember when God did this? Do you remember when he answered this prayer? It was great when we shared communion at our last Sunday lunch prayer meeting. Because it just, it works so well because it was designed to. To be done over a meal. To take the bread and the wine over a proper meal. I know it's less practical in a larger Sunday setting, but you know what? I'd love us to eat a lot more. There's something about eating together that's really special. It brings us together. Big thumbs up. We've now got a kitchen in the, in the coffee shop. We can do more food. You might be able to tell I, I enjoy my food, but it's good to eat together. One people called together. Watch this space. We'll be putting on some more meals. But it's so important to understand that when we come to Jesus, we are united with him, but also with one another. One people, all different backgrounds, but under one God. You know, it's interesting to read as well in Exodus that it wasn't just the Israelites who left, but there were many Egyptians who also left with them. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, they must have seen the hand of the one true God devastating as it was, but they must have said, we're in. We're coming with you. Let us come with you. And they were allowed to come with them, but they were only allowed to share in the Passover if they got circumcised under Old Testament law. Praise God, Jesus fulfilled the law. But it shows that this was not a flippant meal. This was only for those who fully identified with their God. I'm all in. I'm not just going to pick and choose. Oh, that looks a bit tasty. What's all this about? No, no, no. I'm all in. I fully identify with God. And in the same way, you know, when we share communion, it isn't a flippant thing. Bit of grape juice, bit of bread. Yeah, whatever. No, no, it's not a flippant thing that anyone can take part in. It is only for those who fully identify with Jesus who put their trust in his blood alone. But for those that do, the door is wide open. 
the door is wide open. Whatever your background, whatever your history, the door is wide open for you to come in. Let's never lose that sense of community, but also the wonder of what we do when we take communion, when we remember Jesus, our Passover lamb. So this Passover was a community affair. It brought people together. But it was also had some pretty strict instructions. You know, not only did they have to paint the blood on their door frames, they actually had to choose an unblemished lamb. Again, it points to Jesus' sinless perfection. They weren't allowed to break any of the lamb's bones. Again, they wouldn't have known it at the time, but a future prophecy would say none of Jesus' bones would be broken. Again, it's just pointing to Jesus. Uniquely, when Jesus hung on that cross, his legs weren't broken as was custom to speed up the death. His, his side was pierced, fulfilling the prophecy. Not one of his bones would be broken. And even back here, we've got, got it foreshadowed. Little pointers. This is about Jesus. This is about the Messiah to come. They were to eat all of the lamb. They were to work out how much they needed so there wouldn't be any left over. If there was, they had to burn it. And it just speaks of the holiness of God. No bits left to chuck in the garbage or for the dogs to eat. No, no, no. You eat it all. And if there's any left over, it's burnt. Just that sense of holiness about what they're doing. They had to eat it with bitter herbs to remind them of the bitter life that God had saved them from. You know, it's good to remember what we have been saved from. It's very easy to forget, particularly if you've been a Christian a while, what we have been saved from, a lost eternity, a life without knowing the comfort and joy and peace of God, without knowing his presence day by day. We have been saved from that. It's good to remember. It's also good to remember what we have been saved to. So I said, we haven't just been released and we're now free. We have been set free to follow Jesus, to become the people of God. We need to remember what we've been saved from, but also what we've been saved to. And then there's this whole load of instruction about yeast. What's all that about? What's wrong with yeast? Yeast makes bread fluffy and lovely, and it makes beer. I said that a bit enthusiastically, didn't I? They're told to remove all the yeast from their house. Not just to not bake bread with it. Get rid of it for a whole week. No trace of yeast. You kind of see on, on one hand this is practical. This meal was meant to be eaten in haste. Shoes on, cloak on, staff in hand. You've got no time to let your bread rise and prove and leaven. Just eat some pita bread. Just eat it. Unleavened. Come on, we're on the go. You can see it's practical. It was, it was a meal in haste. There was a sense of urgency. And it must have been well exciting, mustn't it? For generations, they'd been praying for this moment, crying out to God for this moment. Now they were on the cusp of the green light. Urgency. We've got no time for, for yeast. But actually, the New Testament sheds deeper significance on that yeast. Because the New Testament uses it as a, as a depiction of our old sinful life. I didn't realize this at the time. I've just been looking at yeast as you do. Yeast is, works by taking some, some of the old batch 
and mixing it in with the new. It kind of kick-starts the proving process. You take some of the old, and Karen's nodding. Check, check me if this is, you've probably explained this far better. Take some of the old, put it into the new, kick-starts the proving process, and, and so the, 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 the whole sort of cycle carries on. In other words, it's taking something from the old that radically affects the new. Interesting fact, guess where yeast was first used in baking bread? Ancient Egypt. Egypt was known for baking bread with yeast. It was one of the things, the great things, forget the pyramids, yeast with bread. That's what they were known for. It was very Egyptian. And God was basically saying that he needed to do more than take the Israelites out of Egypt. There's that well-known phrase, he needed to take Egypt out of the Israelites. He needed to make sure that there was not one trace of this of the customs, of the ways of this wicked regime that was remaining in them. As I said, they've been growing up in this, in this culture for generations. God needed to rid them from all of that. They were called to a new community. They needed to get rid of the old. And that's what all this yeast is talking about. They couldn't risk having even a little bit of Egypt in them. Couldn't risk it. They needed to be free from the past. And sadly, we see how ingrained the Egyptian culture was. Because even after they are rescued and they're wandering around the wilderness, what do they do when Moses goes up the mountain? They build a golden calf. They go back to idolatry. It's so important we throw out the old yeasty areas of our old sinful lives. Fast forward to the New Testament. And Paul is speaking to actually a predominantly Gentile church in Corinth. There wouldn't have been that many Jews there. Most of them probably wouldn't have been that familiar or or at least have partaken in the Passover meal. But he goes straight back there. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6, he says, Do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new, unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's interesting, he's he's using Passover language here to a predominantly Gentile church. And this church was a mess morally. I mean, that's an understatement. There was incest going on and all sorts. It was not a good reflection of the people of God. They reflected more the permissive culture around them. And it was permissive. And so what Paul does, he takes them straight back to the Passover. And he reminds them that they too are included in this story. They too are included in this promise of Christ, our Passover lamb. What was once just for the people of Israel is now open to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Jesus is your Passover lamb, he's saying. Therefore, rid yourself from the old. Don't you realize you've been made new? You've been made holy. Throw out the yeast. Clear out all the stuff that still entangles you. You've died to that old life. You've got a different value system now. 
You know, we're the people of God. We're called to reflect his rule and his reign. As he says to the Romans in Romans 6, we've died to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. Hallelujah. We've got a choice to walk in that freedom. It really speaks to us, I think, as modern Western Christians. It can be so tempting, can't it, to water down the gospel, make it palatable. And that's what yeast does. It makes bread fluffy and lovely. We're not called to water down the gospel. What does Paul call us to? Sincerity and truth. We're called to be different. We're called to reflect a different kingdom, a different value system. And it begs the question again, what are the old yeasty areas of our lives that we need to get rid of? We need to throw out. What ways are we actively throwing out that yeast to embrace the new life that Jesus has won for us on the cross? Just pray right now. Holy Spirit, will you just... I know there are areas in my life, old yeasty areas. Will you just reveal to us, even now, stuff we just need to throw out? We know it's not what we've been called to. Thank you that you give us the grace and you give us the power to do just that, to truly reflect you more brightly. You know, one way of encouraging yourself as well is to look back and say, in what areas am I, have I seen increased freedom in? You know, I often at the start of the year look back In what ways am I more free? In what areas am I more free than I was this time last year? Because you know what? Jesus loves to set us free. And he has set us free. And he wants us to increasingly walk in that freedom. Not to be held back by our old life. You know, and it's a journey. And it's a journey that that won't finish until Jesus returns. But he wants us to increasingly walk in that freedom that he has won for us. As 1 Peter 1 says, I'll finish with this. You were redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down from your ancestors. How? With the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. Chosen before the creation of the world. You have been redeemed. If you put your trust in Jesus, you have been redeemed. You are free. That is your new identity. Can I just encourage us as a church, as we move into Holy Week, let's look afresh at this incredible rescue to call a people out of slavery and darkness and into God's glorious freedom and light. It's a wonderful thing we can celebrate. Because of Jesus, this story is our story. We have a story of an even greater exodus from slavery to sin and into freedom and eternal life. Jesus, our Passover lamb, has done it, has done it. And this promise is for all who trust in his blood and call on his name. Let's just pray, shall we?
Jesus, we just want to thank you. We are so grateful that you were willing to give your life for us, that you were obedient to death, even death on a cross, that we might be saved, that we might walk free. And Lord, I just pray right now for every tired heart that as we reflect on what you have done, may that heart come alive again in Jesus' name. I pray for every, every hard heart, every cold heart. Lord, win that heart over again with that demonstration of your love on the cross. Just warm those cold hearts again. And Lord, for every heart that doesn't know you, Father, I pray this Holy Week, as we look again at the victory of the cross, may you win new hearts for you. We pray this in your mighty name, the powerful, beautiful, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand and worship him?